Hello and welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's episode of the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based breathwork facilitator and healing guide. And today I have an interview for you with Shore Davidi, who is awesome. <laughs> Just awesome. Um, Shore uses she, her pronouns, and she is a certified intuitive eating counselor, certified personal trainer, and the host of the Redefining Health and Wellness podcast. And I'm actually working with Shore right now in her group intuitive eating program called The Snack Pack. And this is not sponsored at all. I started working with her after this interview. Um, But the work has been really incredible and helpful and transformative so far. And I talk a bit about my connection to food and hunger and the body and diet culture throughout this conversation. Um, Food shame is a big one for me that I'm still working through and working with Shore and intuitive eating so far has been really helpful and being in community with people talking about that. So this is definitely a newer, pretty new (laughs) area of exploration for me. But when I found Shore's work through Erica Smith, sex ed, who what's like her Instagram handle? I don't know. Her name's Erica Smith. Um, who I'll link in the show notes too because Shore also mentions her but I found Shore's work through Erica and it just really resonated and just felt really good and Shore is also queer and bisexual which I am as well and so that connection feels really nice and we talk about that a bit too so we talk about her journey from music school to being a lawyer to becoming an intuitive eating counselor and getting to where she is now we talk about her journey with her body and what her relationship with her body is like learning to look at our bodies in a different way changing bodies shame food shame hunger shame body shame deprogramming diet culture what diet culture is and how it's linked with other systems of oppression learning to trust our body's signals messages and needs learned morality around food choices and bodies body acceptance how to channel your rage about diet culture love this part (laughs) what intuitive eating is what inner interoceptive awareness is feeling out of control around food emotional eating queerness and bisexuality and bullshit gatekeeping in queerness so I really, really enjoyed this episode and it was just, it's just really resonant for where I'm at right now, which generally, if you can't tell, the interviews often are. (laughs) At one point, Shore does sound kind of like a robot for like not even a full sentence, kind of near the end. Um, It was definitely a Wi-Fi issue, so Shore is not a robot, don't worry. (laughs) And it's like literally not even a full sentence that it sounds weird for, but just FYI, I wanted to let you know. And yeah, I think I just have one thing I want to share with you, which is it's Libra season and I'm Libra and I have a free Libra season breathwork playlist and intro to breathwork video for you that you can download, watch the video, learn how to do breathwork and breathe along with the playlist if you want, if that sounds good and you want to sort of connect with these Libra season themes through breathwork. So I'll link that in the description. You can check that out if you'd like. And let's get into the interview with Shore. Yeah, so I would love to start just by hearing 
anything that feels present for you to share about your journey to getting to where you are and doing the work that you do in the world? Absolutely. So I've had a very meandering journey to get to the place that I am now. People are always interested to hear that uh, when I went to college, it was actually to get a music degree. So I have a Bachelor of Arts in music performance, but about halfway through college, I knew that I wasn't going to pursue that as a career anymore. It just didn't feel like the right choice. But my career counselor told me that if I changed my major, it would take me six years to graduate. And I was not into that. So I decided to just stick it out, finish the degree, and just take other classes of things that I was interested in. And at that point, I decided that I was really interested in going to law school and becoming a lawyer. So very, very different career path than I initially thought. And I did that. I went to law school. I became a lawyer. And I hated it. Um, but primarily because, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons was because I just felt like I had to be a different person at work than I was in the rest of my life. And I'm someone where authenticity is extremely important to me and being able to show up as my authentic self, uh, is really just lights me up and makes me happy. And some people can totally do the whole, like, be a quote unquote professional, a different individual in their office than they are in the rest of their life. But for me, it just made me sad and I did not like it. So I decided, even though I had put all that time into going to law school and becoming a lawyer, that it was not the career for me. And at that point I left and decided to start my own business, try my hand at entrepreneurship. And it started off initially as just kind of more standard personal training work. And then as I got deeper into social justice and body liberation and the fat acceptance movement and these different areas, I really uh, changed and developed more of a niche in helping people with overall health and wellness, but specifically helping them to redefine what health and wellness means to them in the context of their own lives and their own wants and needs, instead of the very narrow definition that society gives us as what health supposedly is. And that definition usually only fits for one kind of person. And that's like a white affluent uh, thin person, which is going to cut out, you know, 95% of the globe in terms of feeling like they can work on their health and wellness and decide what that means to them. So a lot has happened uh, between figuring out what I want to do for my career and kind of ending up where I am now, but it has been a very interesting and beautiful journey and I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it sounds like it. And we love a meandering journey and story <laughs> over here. Oh, it's perfect. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, first of all, I didn't know that you studied music. I think that's really wonderful. Um, and I had kind of a similar experience in college where while I was getting my degree, I realized like, oh, I'm not going to go into the field I thought I was going to go into. I'm not going to use this. But mm -hmm. um I don't want it to take another year or two years to graduate, so I'm just going to finish it. Um, so yeah, that was resonant for me too. Um, I think I would really like to hear a little bit if you want to share about 
your journey with your body and what your relationship with your body is like now, like when you're talking about health and wellness and redefining health and wellness and just everything that you do is so much about bodies, right? Um, And I feel like, at least for me and what often comes up on the show is like, we help people with the stuff that we have struggled with. We help people with the stuff that um, has been helpful for us. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear anything you want to share about your journey with your body. Of course, this is one of my favorite topics, as you can imagine. (laughs) And, you know, bodies are, are, are interesting because I think so many of us are taught to hate our bodies and to have this enemy relationship with our bodies where we're constantly trying to wrestle them into submission. We're trying to control them. We're trying to change them. And they're like a barrier between us and what we what we want or think that we want. So, you know, we're taught that if our body doesn't look a certain way, if health doesn't present a certain way in our bodies, then we can't possibly be happy. We can't possibly be successful or be worthy. And so a lot of my own work with my body has been about unlearning those very crappy and insidious messages that I've received my whole life about bodies and instead embracing my body as a friend instead of an enemy and realizing that, you know, our relationship with our body is truly the longest relationship that we will have in our lives. Like, yes, you may have a spouse who you're married to for a long time or friends that you've known since you were a kid, but your body is the only thing that is with you from birth to death. And when you think about how much of our lives we spend fighting against our bodies and despising them, it's just really heartbreaking. Uh, And all that time, energy, and money that goes into that, uh, that could be going to things that are more important to us, to things that we are, are more passionate about. So a lot of the work that I've done with myself and with other people is, well, how can we learn to look at our bodies in a different way? How can we realize that it's natural for bodies to change, right? Like we expect everything else in our lives to change and that's not that big of a deal. But when it comes to our bodies, we're taught that they're supposed to stay the same our whole lives and that when they don't, we need to pour ourselves into getting them to look as close to they did before as possible, which is completely unrealistic. And of course, when we're doing that, we're spending all our time focusing on our bodies. We can't focus on the other really important things in life, like fighting back against diet culture, fighting back against white supremacy, um, fighting back against ageism and all these things that are keeping us down as people. Uh, And so one of the things that I've really embodied is the idea that our bodies, no matter what they look like, no matter what their health status may be, they deserve our respect and they deserve our care. There isn't some threshold that you have to meet to show your body respect and care. Just having a body, just being on this earth means that your body is worthy of those things. And that's, of course, easier said than done because there's so much unlearning that has to happen to get to that point where you really believe that. And it can take people a lifetime. I mean, it's so much of the messaging that we get doesn't ever go away, but it can get quieter and it can pop up less frequently. And 
it's just such a beautiful thing when you can get to the point of seeing your body as a partner and as the vessel through which you're doing your life, because you can't do anything in this life without your body, you know? And when you really let that sink in, you are overcome with a gratitude for it and understanding that, yeah, maybe your body doesn't look exactly the way you would want it to, or maybe it doesn't function exactly the way that you would prefer that society tells you that it should, but it's still yours and it's still the only one that you get. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Something that's coming up for me while you're sharing is this idea of shame. And I was actually thinking about this while I was eating lunch before this conversation, as I had this bowl of like noodles and vegetables and I ate it and then I was still hungry. And as I was going to get more, I felt myself feel ashamed that I was still hungry. Like I should have been satisfied. Um, And I think that's where body shame comes up for me a lot is shame around being hungry, shame around foods that I want to eat or foods that I am eating. And I assume this is probably something that you uh, see a lot, like shame um, come up in this realm. And yeah, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about that or things to share about working with shame. Mm, Yeah. Shame and guilt are two of the biggest emotions that my clients and just the people that I speak with in general associate with food, associate with exercise and associate with their bodies. And this comes back to that control piece that I was talking about where diet culture and wellness culture's messages are very strong and they're prolific throughout society. And we learn these rules throughout our lives about what's an appropriate amount to eat what's an appropriate amount of hunger or fullness to feel you know what are the foods that are quote unquote good and the foods that are quote unquote bad and when you're trying to conform to these all or nothing expectations shame is the natural result when you find that oh wait i I can't conform to that, or that doesn't feel good in my body. And this comes back to the body piece too, because the only way that these systems like diet culture and wellness culture can function is to teach us that our bodies can't be trusted, right? When you went to get more food, you felt shameful about it because you probably thought, "Mm, I, I shouldn't need this. So something's wrong with my body because I'm wanting this food because I've been taught that I shouldn't need, you know, another serving. Whereas there's nothing wrong with your body. There's something very, very wrong with the culture, though, that tells you that you should be ashamed by listening to your body's cues. Have you ever uh, felt ashamed for uh, feeling like you needed to pee and going to the bathroom? Probably not. And that's just another signal that our bodies give us. But diet culture has carved out feelings of hunger as being taboo signals, right? These are bad. We don't want those. Um, You know, we don't want to listen to that when our body says that we need food. And that's super fucked up. Like we do not act that way about any other signal that our body gives us. When our body tells us that it's too hot or it's too cold, we change our clothing to accommodate what our body needs. You know, when our body says, hey, I'm really tired, most of the time, again, not everybody, but most of the time, you're probably going to try to find ways to get your body rest. Like these are just seen as natural signals from our bodies. But when it comes to signals about food or even exercise as well, there's these molds that we feel like we have to fit into. And that's what brings that shame up when we don't fit into them. Yeah. 
I think it might be helpful if maybe we could talk a little bit about like what what is diet culture and how it's linked with these other systems of oppression because what's coming up for me when you're talking about the differences between like no I don't feel ashamed when I have to pee or when I'm cold or when I'm tired um, is like there isn't morality tied to um, being cold or needing to pee the way that we've sort of been taught like food and like goodness is connected and different kinds of food so yeah, can you share a little bit about like what diet culture is and how it's linked with these other systems? Yeah, so you hit the nail on the head by bringing up morality because that is the key difference here. So when we're talking about diet culture, what we are talking about is a system that says that there is one type of body that is the right type of body. And this is typically a thin, white, like outwardly, you know, quote unquote, healthy looking body. So this is someone who is um, able-bodied as well. And diet culture says that if you cannot conform to this idealized body, then that's a moral failing on your part and that you should be spending every resource you have, so time, money, energy, relationships, to pursue this idealized body that diet culture says is the right body. And if you don't, it's not just, oh, you didn't do this thing we wanted, it's you're a bad person, how dare you? And we see this infiltrate in everything. So diet culture is, is made up by, you know, the beauty industry, the weight loss industry, uh, the anti-aging industry. Like there's so many different things that are at play. And it's really fucked up because as you dig deeper, you can also see that diet culture is based in all of the systems of oppression that we already know to exist. So diet culture directly upholds white supremacy by saying the type of body that is most associated with white people is the right body, is the healthy body. That's the one that you should pursue. You know, diet culture directly upholds ableism by saying you need to be pursuing perfect physical and mental health. Oh, that's not even possible for you in your circumstances? Well, too bad. Sucks to be you. You're going to need to keep trying anyways to fit into these standards. So it's not even just like, oh yeah, beauty industry is bad, whatever. It really operates by using these already existing systems of oppression and by actively harming people. Because if you are genetically in a fat body, right, you could try every diet in the world. You can spend your whole life trying to achieve this ideal and it's not going to be possible for you. If you are a disabled individual and there's nothing you can do to change your disability, you will never uh, meet the standard that diet culture says you're supposed to. So you'll always be other. You'll never get to be in the conforming group. And so you can see how this harms the vast majority of people. And then it only empowers people who already fit into that mold, you know? So, and I'll just give myself as an example because your listeners can't see me in that I live in a very uh, privileged body. I have thin privilege. Uh, I am outwardly able-bodied and I um, am mixed race. So I have a lighter skin color than say my dad who's, who's fully Iranian. 
And those things work to my advantage in diet culture. And diet culture would say that I earned these advantages, right? That I worked hard to get the body that I have and that anybody, if they just, you know, eat well, if they exercise a lot, that they can have the body that I have. And that's just false. That is not true. We have a globe filled with billions of people. We cannot all look the same. We cannot all expect to look the same, have the same versions of health, to want to do the same exercise or eat the same. And yet this culture says there's one right way to do it and everybody needs to do it and get in line. Uh, otherwise, you know, people are going to have a problem with it. And when you say it out loud like that, it seems ludicrous. And yet almost everybody is making choices each day based on what diet culture is telling them they're supposed to do, especially in the realms of, again, food, exercise, and how you treat your body. Yeah, when you were saying that about, you know, if you just work hard enough, then you can have this body is like what diet culture says. What you were saying exactly sounded like the myth that capitalism also tries to teach us, which is like, if you just work hard enough and you're smart enough, then you can like become Jeff Bezos. Like that kind of idea of like how, what we have is exactly what we have earned. Um, so thank you for pointing that out in that parallel. Yeah, because capitalism is, yeah, capitalism is very much connected to diet and wellness culture. Because again, if you teach people that something is wrong with them, right? They will do anything to try to fix it. If you tell people that, hey, having a cellulite or having lines on your face is a flaw, but look, we have the solution. You just have to pay for it. Then you are in a constant state of having to fix yourself. And that is running directly on capitalism, which is like, great, let's take that money. Let's create these problems so that people pay us for it. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's so insidious that it's just like, oh, that's just the way it is. Like I even noticed I was visiting some family over the past couple of weeks and my older sister got engaged. And just in that weekend, like my mom and sister and younger sibling were all already talking about how they needed to lose weight for my sister's wedding, like right after the engagement announcement. And I was just noticing that and tuning into like, oh, that's so interesting. And like my mom did not understand at all when I was just like, oh, mom, like, you don't know, like, you don't need to do that. Um, and that's not like, you know, I don't need to like force my mom into my way of thinking or anything like that. But it just made me think about how normal and accepted and insidious that is that like, that's the accepted response or even expected response of, for example, someone who's getting married, like, that's just what you're supposed to do for that. And that's when the patriarchy piece comes in, right? Because as a culture, we put extremely high standards on brides to <laughs> adapt their bodies for their wedding. Nobody is making sweating for the wedding tank tops for groomsmen or, no. or for the groom. Like that's, that's not a thing, but brides are, and their families, any women who are a part of the wedding are expected to, you know, put all of their effort in to look as beautiful and as quote unquote perfect as possible for their wedding day. And it's like, wait a minute, that's not what a wedding is about. A wedding is about the celebration of, of love and a partnership between two people. But diet culture is like, oh no, that is a very, um, 
very multi-million dollar industry, we got to get in there. How can we do it? Oh, we'll just convince people that in order to be worthy of being in photos that they're going to have for the rest of their lives, they have to lose weight, right? Problem solved. Yep. Problem solved. Perfect. <laughs> I mean, it feels like the sort of like what we need to work with around this is so complex, but from what you're saying, it's bringing up with me this idea of like needing to develop a more trusting relationship with the body and learning to love our bodies actually as they are, which are, I mean, so complex and much easier said than done um, and very much in process with that over here. But yeah, I'm just wondering if there's anything that you can share about developing a more trusting relationship with the body about accepting the body. Yeah. Well, and I'll say that a lot of people automatically try to jump to body love, right? They're like, oh, like I, I need to love my body. Everyone keeps telling me to love my body. I don't know why I can't love my body. And I think that the standard to love your body is, you know, just as difficult to meet as uh, diet culture standards of trying to fit into this thin ideal. So I just want to say upfront that if you're out there and you're like, I'm trying so hard to love my body and I can't, like, that's okay. Loving your body is actually not a requirement for uh, disentangling yourself from these systems. Like, look, it's great. If you can get to a point where you're like, mm, I love all of me, I look awesome, whatever, that's fine. Um, but, you know, even if you can get there, you may not love every part of your body every day. Even the people who have a really great relationship with their body wouldn't necessarily say, oh, I look in the mirror and I'm just like, mm, I love this stretch mark, it's so cute. Um, and, you know, some people do feel that way and that's wonderful too. But that's not what you have to strive for. Really, it's this trust like we were talking about and this respect and this care. It's just about recognizing your body for what it is and also not blaming your body for the things that are going wrong or that you feel badly about. Because that's one of diet culture's like worst tricks is teaching us that when something is not going well in our lives or when we you know, catch a glimpse of ourselves in the mirror and we don't like what we see, is to turn that inward on ourselves and to say, well, I'm so ugly, I'm so stupid, I can't believe I did that. And what we wanna do is turn those negative feelings outward where they belong. Turn those negative feelings outward to these systems and the industries that have made us feel this way in our own skin. And this is an exercise I have a lot of my clients do when they are first starting on body image work and they are really internalizing stuff towards themselves is I say, all right, well, the next time you look in a mirror or you know you put on some clothes and you're not feeling so great about your body why not ask yourself who is profiting off of me feeling this way who is profiting mm -hmm. off of me being angry at myself who is profiting off of me feeling ugly and you'll be able to very quickly come up with all kinds of answers depending on what specific thing is ailing you that day and that's where the rage goes. I'm not telling people not to feel rage and not to feel sadness about this horrible system that we've all been indoctrinated into. Yes, feel those feelings, but direct them outward where they belong to the people who are responsible for making you feel that way. Because there's nothing wrong with your body. There's something wrong with the system and the culture that has taught you that there's something wrong with your body. And this comes up too when people are just having 
a, a hard time in general. So often people will say, oh, well, I'm having a, a bad body image day. Or, you know, when people have that feeling of, I feel fat, quote unquote, and that is not a feeling. Either you have a fat body or you don't have a fat body, but you cannot feel fat. So you need to ask yourself, what is it that I'm actually feeling and what's going on here? Because we so often take out on our bodies other things that's going on in our lives. So if something feels out of control in our relationship or in our career, all of a sudden we start to feel really crappy about our bodies. And, you know, this pandemic, oh my gosh, so many people are struggling with body image stuff right now in this pandemic. And that makes sense because this pandemic is something that we can't control. Bad things are happening and there's nothing that we can do about it. And diet culture teaches us that our bodies can be controlled. That if we just restrict and if we buckle down, that we can control them. And so a lot of times with body image, we're just looking for something to channel our energy into that we feel like we can control. But in reality, it makes us feel worse than if we just focused on taking care of ourselves and focused on saying, hey, my body is feeling this way today. And however my body is feeling, however my body is looking, that's fine. And I think the concept of body acceptance is a very useful one for many people, but I also think it's important to remember that what you're accepting is a body that will always be changing, right? If, if you can only accept the body that you're in today, right now, whatever that may look like and feel like, that's not gonna last you for very long because it's natural and normal for bodies to change over time in different circumstances. Many people have gained weight over the course of this pandemic and that's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing wrong with that, right? People's entire routines have changed. People are experiencing a lot of mental health struggles right now. And our bodies often reflect the things that are going on in our lives. And so when you say, oh no, it's my fault, I need to buckle down, like that's not helpful. What you want to do is give yourself grace and self-compassion and understanding that like, hey, you're going through a hard time and yeah, your body may reflect that a little bit. That's not anything wrong with your body. Like it's here and it's, it's trying to help you as you get through this hard stuff. Yeah, that's making me think about how it's also like the body that we're supposed to have, right? This like thin, it's also a young body, right? Like when I, when I yes. really think about what I'm comparing my body to, it's how it used to look in high school when I was like 15 years old, um, which is a body like I'm never going to have again. So I really appreciate what you're saying about bodies change and that's normal and that is okay and to be expected forever. So many people hold up their high school body or their college body as like the ideal body because you always hear people talking about like, oh, I'm trying to get back to this body or I'm trying to get back to this weight. And whenever a client says that to me, I'm always like, okay, so what was your life like then? Like, tell me about what was going on in your life. You know, how was your mental health and your social life and what were you eating and how active were you? And their lives were completely different. I'm like, okay, so your whole life has changed. You're literally a different person, but you think that your body should still look like that? No, that's ludicrous. Yeah, that's so wild. I'm like, yeah, I used to play two hours of sports every single day, <laughs> which is just a completely different life. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to play two hours of sports every day also. <laughs> um, well, something else that I wanted to ask you about, like while we're talking about, while we're talking about bodies and while we're talking about 
the way that they change is about intuitive eating. Um, that's something that I feel like I don't fully understand, although at the same time, I'm like, do I practice it? I'm not sure. Um, but when I think about intuitive eating, like I think about the ways that we let our bodies tell us what we need to be eating rather than diets or media or the things that our friends eat or whatever as the things we need to be eating. And yeah, I would just love if you could sort of break down like what is intuitive eating? And yeah, that's helpful. a great question. Yeah, so intuitive eating is an eating framework. It's an eating tool that was originally conceptualized by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. So they wrote a book called Intuitive Eating. The very first edition came out in 1995. It's now in its fourth edition, which just came out this summer, and it's fantastic. If anyone is listening and you're like, oh, I want to get the intuitive eating book, definitely get the fourth edition because it's updated. It's it's really great. So they created this framework that is based in 10 principles um, that you know you can link to in the show notes or whatever for people who are interested. But the idea is that you're eating as a form of self-care instead of as a form of self-control. So it's very different from diet culture and dieting where you're letting the body lead you. And for the most part, we're born intuitive eaters, right? When you're a little kid, you know when you're hungry and you know when you're full. Anyone who's a parent out there of a small child knows that if your kid isn't hungry anymore, they're going to refuse to eat. And when they are <laughs> hungry, they're probably going to scream. And kids also, they know what tastes good to them. You know, they won't eat something that they're like, I don't want this food right now. And they will eat something that they're really excited about. There have been studies that show that toddlers are perfectly capable of regulating their own appetites and also of eating a balance of different foods and nutrients. Like the body just knows what to do to feed ourselves, which makes sense, right? That we would have evolved to be able to feed ourselves since that's literally a basic for survival of the human race. Um, but then you have diet culture messaging that starts when we're really young. And if you have family who diets, you know, if you had a grandparent or a parent or caregiver who was into dieting, or as you got older into middle school or high school, if your friends um, were doing dieting or taking diet pills, or you started reading magazines that were like, hey, don't eat after 6 p.m., you know, it's going to go straight to your hips. We start to internalize all those messages, and that's what takes us out of our body. That's what makes makes us think, oh, I can't trust this hunger signal. You know, you start to see labeling on packages. That's like 100 calorie snack pack. And you eat that snack pack and you're like, wait, I'm still hungry. Well, I should probably just ignore that because like the snack pack says that 100 calories for a snack should be enough for me. So I'm just going to eat it. You know, this is this idea that people think that they only need 1200 calories to um, live and have that daily, that's the amount of calories a toddler needs, not a full grown adult. And yet that is like diet gospel about the limit of what you should be doing. And so intuitive eating steps in and says, all right, let's give you some tools for how to get back into your body. And so it's based on this concept called interoceptive awareness, which we've already talked about. Interoceptive awareness is our mind's connection with our body and 
the signals that our body is giving us. So when you need to pee, that's interceptive awareness, being able to recognize, hey, I need to pee and then responding to it. Same thing with hunger and with fullness, same thing um, with uh, pleasure, same thing with uh, different feelings in the body, being able to say, oh, I'm angry and there's this pit in my stomach. That's interceptive awareness to recognize emotions are shown physically in your body. And so intuitive eating says, let's go back to that. Let's learn how to trust our bodies again when it comes to eating as well as uh, exercise and other health um, behaviors and see where that takes us. Let's go back to our body's natural wisdom, unlearn all this other crap, and then see how we feel and see what kind of a relationship we can have with food and with our bodies. And it's just a very beautiful practice and it's very flexible. So even though I mentioned that there are 10 principles to intuitive eating, they're not rules. It's not like, oh, all right, I did number one, check. Okay, let me do number two, check it off. Like they're just guidelines to help you as you are finding barriers and as you're struggling and trying to figure out like, okay, why do I feel this way about food? You know, why am I having such a hard time getting in touch with my body? So there's a book and a workbook that are wonderful for people to go through on their own, depending on your own relationship with food. Some people can like read through those and then be like, great, I totally get how to do this. Like I know what to do with my life. And then there are people who try to do it on their own and they just have so much diet culture within them that they really struggle and they're not sure how they can apply it to their individual lives. And that's where someone like me comes in. I'm a certified intuitive eating counselor to help them figure out, all right, what does this actually look like in your life? Where are you getting stuck? Yeah, that's so helpful. Thank you for sharing that. I think one of the big questions that I have when it comes to intuitive eating, and maybe this is just like, if I'm, if I knew more about it, maybe it would be a moot point. I'm not sure. And you can tell me, but um, I feel like sometimes I go through phases where I feel like I'm addicted to really processed foods or like sugar, like my body is having a relationship with sugar or something, usually sugar <laughs> that doesn't feel really good to me. And so then I'm like, my body is craving this thing, but I'm not sure it's actually craving it or it's just like in kind of an addictive relationship with sugar. Does that question make sense? Yeah, it, that's one of the most common questions that people have. Oh, great. <laughs> so you're on the right path. With that. Um, <laughs> cool. And, you know, I will say as well that addiction is a word that gets thrown around a lot with food in our culture, but the science shows that even though it may feel like a person is addicted, that you cannot be addicted to food or sugar in the same way that a person could be addicted to something like cocaine. Because obviously cocaine, you don't need to live, but food, you do. You will die if you do not feed yourself. And so our, even though, again, it can feel like we have this strong compulsion to eat something, it's not addiction in the same way. And the reason that we know this, just as an example in your own life, like during those times where you're having that relationship with sugar, I have a feeling that you're not going into the grocery store, like sneaking a packet of sugar off the shelf and like digging into it and eating it by the handful. And if you were addicted to it in the way that a person is addicted to cocaine, like that's a behavior that you would expect to see from a person, right? Of like, I have to have it. I can't get enough. 
Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so I just want to throw that out first. Um, and I'm not downplaying the fact that, again, it can feel addictive and it can feel out of control. And usually when that is going on, there could be a, a several different things at play. Most common, what I found with people who are feeling addicted to something like sugar or processed foods, is that it's the result of restriction. And that may be actual restriction, like physical restriction that the person is aware of, or it may be mental restriction that they don't even know they have. So remember all these diet culture rules I was talking about that we internalize? Yeah. So if you've been told your whole life, right, processed foods are quote unquote bad, they're unhealthy, sugar is quote unquote bad, it's quote unquote evil, and that's in your brain, then when you are craving it and you want it, you may be unconsciously restricting yourself and saying, oh, well, I shouldn't have that food for X, X, and X reason. And then that craving builds because your body's saying, hey, I no, I actually do want this thing. And the more you restrict, the more you want it. And then what happens is the person will binge on, you know, the sugar, the processed food, whatever it is, feel crappy, like feel very physically crappy about it. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because you're like, oh, see, I am addicted to this sugar and processed food. So what should I do? Let me cut it out again, right? Let me just cut <laughs> it out of my life. And then you go through the cycle again uh, because we're cutting out, you know, an entire food group here. And so that's one of the biggest things is if there's restriction somewhere that's going to cause uh, overeating or eating past fullness of foods like processed foods and sugar. Another piece may simply just be that you or anyone else who's experiencing this doesn't have tools of mindfulness in place when it comes to eating. So we, you may not eat something like ice cream the same way you eat something like a salad. And again, it's because of the cultural messages that we get about it, where, you know, you're like, oh, this is so good. I really shouldn't be having this. I'm being bad. So I'm just going to like quickly eat the whole thing and get it over with without actually checking in with like, am I still enjoying this? Uh, you know, am I full? Am I hungry? Like, how is this actually feeling in my body? And so when we bring mindfulness into it and people are actually able to check in with themselves and see how it's feeling, our bodies are perfectly capable of telling us like, hey, this is too much sugar. I've reached the point where I don't want to eat this anymore. It doesn't feel good in my body. Um, or, you know, another thing is what are, what are you eating it with? Our bodies respond differently depending on which nutrient components we're having together. So if all you've had all day is like sugar and carby stuff, like, yeah, you're probably going to feel really crappy um, because you're missing out on, you know, proteins, fats, and other kinds of foods. So when that happens to you, what I would recommend when you're noticing, like, I'm feeling really bad because I've, I've eaten the sugar, I've eaten whatever, is to try to look at it objectively as data and try to gather information and say, okay, you know, why do I feel like I ate what I ate? You know, how was I feeling while I ate it? How was I feeling before? Did something in, happen that day that triggered you to want to eat it, right? Like, were you actually hungry for it? Or was there maybe uh, something that stressed you out that made you just be like, oh, I need ice cream and I need it now. Uh, what else did you eat that day, right? If you haven't eaten for six hours, of course you're going to overeat on the processed foods and the sugary foods because your body is hungry. You've reached a point of primal hunger where your body is like, feed me now 
And the reason at that point that you're craving something like sugar is because those are carbohydrates that break down very quickly. So your body can use the energy faster than other kinds of food. So your body's actually very smart. Often it's telling you get these certain foods for a reason, but because we're taught, again, this is a moral issue and these things are bad for us, then we turn it in on ourselves and we say, well, I must be at fault. You know, I, I must just be addicted to this and I can't control myself. When usually there could be any number of other factors that are going on, but people just don't investigate. They don't know to investigate because it's much simpler if diet culture just says, nope, you just, you just need to get on a diet, just cut it out, that's easier. And what I've seen with people who try to cut foods out. So if you're someone who's like, oh, I don't keep cookies in my house because you know I'll overeat them. And it's just easier if I don't keep the cookies in my house. That's only a band-aid for the deeper issue that's going on. Because eventually you're gonna encounter cookies. You know, you're gonna go on vacation, there's gonna be a cookie buffet, or someone that you love is gonna give you cookies as a gift, and you're gonna be expected to eat them. And then you're gonna feel totally out of control with those cookies, and you're not gonna know what to do with them. So you can't outrun this just by not having things in your house and trying to say, oh, I just won't have it. Wouldn't it be better to get to the bottom of why you feel like you have to eat the whole package of cookies? And intuitive eating gives tools for helping people figure out what's going on with that. Okay, this is so helpful. Um, I just have one last question about this and then I really wanna talk a little bit about queerness before we go. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask you about emotional eating in quotes I'm doing because I think yeah I think there are a lot of different perspectives on this and some things I've seen shared during the pandemic have been have felt really good to me about how like sometimes we use food as a soothing tool and that's okay whereas before I'd always heard like I always felt guilty really for eating when I feel sad which is definitely something that I do and yeah so anything that you want to share about that I'm just curious about your perspective. I'm gonna start with, it is okay. Hey! <laughs> so you're, you're right with that, your thinking is right there. I'm glad that felt good to you when you were seeing those messages. Um, so here's the thing about emotional eating. All eating has an emotional component, really. Uh, you know, I think the food is fuel mentality has gotten really popularized where people are expected to just think like, oh no, food, we only need it to fuel our bodies. Like there doesn't need to be anything else with this. But from, literally when we are infants, like we learn that food has an emotional component, right? Like the bond between mother and child where, you know, mother is feeding the baby, um, either with breast milk or even with formula, it's still like a loving um, experience of uh, being together. And so you get that early on. And then as you get older, you find different instances of that where emotions are a part of the eating experience, right? Like pretty much every major holiday has some kind of food and drink components mm -hmm. that is associated with it. And that is an emotional experience, right? We use food as celebration. Um, we use food in communities. So different cultures have different foods that are and different flavors that are a big part of that culture and that make people um, have camaraderie with each other. So you can't separate out 
these aspects of food. It is impossible. Um, as long as we have food, we're going to have some emotional components to food. And so it's perfectly natural that sometimes we turn to food as a form of comfort and as a form of soothing. You know, think about in the winter time when it's really cold out and you're like, mm, you know, what would be good. I want some nice hot soup right now and some like fresh bread out of the oven. Like that's a form of soothing yourself, but we don't have a problem with that. <laughs> so, you know, this is a natural, normal thing in our lives. When eating uh, with emotions in mind becomes a problem is when it is our only or one of our only coping mechanisms for dealing with our emotions. If you are using food as a way to numb out and not deal with the negative emotions that you're experiencing, that's when it can become really problematic and just cause a lot of harm in your life. Because it's normal and natural, again, that sometimes you're going to use food to soothe or to numb yourself. Like sometimes that's just the tool that you want. But if it's the tool that you go to every single time, that's when our relationship with food can start to feel really out of control, where we can start to feel really sick because again, we're not having that mindfulness component and it just doesn't even feel good. Um, it's where we're not even in our body when we're doing that. A lot of times people like don't even realize what they've done, that they've binged on a bunch of food until after when they feel crappy and they're like, oh my God, what just happened? And it's because they, in a way they've left their body um, to numb out from that experience, which is what they were trying to do. And then they come back to it and they're like, oh crap, this does not feel good. So if your emotional eating is to that level where you feel like you don't have other coping tools to handle your emotions, that's the point where you're gonna to wanna to find those tools, whether that's you know working with a therapist or working with a coach, intuitive eating counselor, whatever it may be, to help you figure out what's going on there and give you other options for dealing with your emotions. But yeah, some emotional eating is just a normal part of life and it doesn't always have to be negative emotions. Like I said, sometimes it's positive and celebratory emotions, which is wonderful. That is wonderful. And I really felt like how delicious that is when you said like the warm soup and the bread. I'm like, oh yeah, that just feels so perfect. Um, so I appreciate that comparison too. So <laughs> we only have a couple minutes left, which I'm like, how did this happen? I just had so many <laughs> questions for you and you're so amazing. But <laughs> when I reached out to you, I told you how I loved your episode that you did on your podcast, Redefining Health and Wellness, where you had like a bisexual panel group chat with your friends and it was so cool um, and I felt so seen by it. So yeah, I was hoping we could just talk a little bit about queerness and bisexuality specifically. Um, and I guess I'm curious to hear if you'd like to share a little bit about your journey of coming into your bisexuality, like what that experience or process was like for you for realizing like, oh, I'm bisexual. <laughs> Yes, another meandering part of the journey. For sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, so I'm someone who didn't come out to myself or anyone else until my late 20s. Um, I believed myself to be straight for the majority of my life. And there are many different reasons for that, um, including just like the family and religious structure that I grew up with where, you know, being gay was not 
considered an option um, in my household at that time. And, you know, I think with bisexuality specifically, when I was growing up, there wasn't any bisexual representation. I don't think I even know when was the first time I heard the word bisexual. It probably wasn't until college. I didn't know any bisexual people. I mean, at, at my high school, like even the gay kids, like they didn't come out until after high school because I went to a public school in North Texas and it was very conservative. And, you know, that was just asking to get your ass kicked, basically, if you wanted to try to come out in high school. So it's very different from what I think um, generations are experiencing now, at least based on what I've seen on TikTok. Um, people coming out <laughs> much younger. Um, it's, it tends to be a more celebratory experience for a lot of people, and it's a lot more accepted. And I think a lot of that is because of the representation that's available. So I was lacking that representation. And the thing that's interesting about being bisexual is that you are attracted to um, the uh, opposite uh, sex as well, right? Or opposite gender. Um, I don't even know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> you are, uh, as a woman, I'll say that I am also attracted to men. So, and that's the societal expectation, right? That's heteronormativity. So, it's, I think it's a lot easier to just ignore the other stuff <laughs> and it, to the extent that it's there, just kind of explain it away because there is a part of you that experiences what you're supposed to quote unquote experience. And so, yeah, I mean, I went, I dated men for my entire life and I did not realize that I was bisexual until I was already married to a man. And that's its whole own uh, thing of, of dealing with and reckoning. But the way that I um, figured it out was just by, I think, kind of settling in and starting to, again, get more in touch with my body and myself. Something that I love about um, intuitive eating work and body respect work is that it really does leak out into the other parts of your life. And so as I was discovering my authenticity in those areas, I think that really opened me up more to figure out what my authentic self was in all areas and allowed me to start, you know, feeling attraction that I didn't realize that I had felt before. And of course, now I can look back over the course of my life and be like, mm, girl, you're bisexual all this time. <laughs> um, but didn't know it at the time. And um, it's been fascinating. So yeah, in that episode you were talking about, it's uh, me and two of my friends, Allie and Tiffany, and we call ourselves the girl gang. And um, we do recurring episodes on my podcast. And all three of us are bisexual. And it was kind of through the two of them talking about their experiences to me of them being bisexual that I felt ready to claim that label for myself. And I felt like, oh, that does fit me. That is something. Because um, I think especially bisexuals and pansexuals tend to deal with a lot of internalized homophobia, a lot of feelings of like, oh, well, how can I possibly know that I am bisexual or pansexual if I've never, you know, been with a, a woman, if you are a woman? You know, if I've never dated one, like maybe I'm just trying to be special. Maybe, you know, I'm just trying to, to be a part of this group and I don't belong. And so many people really struggle with that um, and feeling like they don't belong. And my, my response to that now is like, nobody ever asked straight people to prove their attraction to <laughs> you know, other people, like that's, that's not a thing. Like, cause we just accept that everybody is straight and that's the norm until you hear otherwise. Nobody's like, 
oh, uh, to, you know, high school boys, like, oh, well, have you had sex with any, any girls yet? No. All right. Well, we don't know you're straight then. You can't, <laughs> you can't know that. That's so like, good. <laughs> you, just, like, you know who you're like, that's the best way I can explain it. It's like, you know who you're attracted to, whether you're straight or you're gay or you're bisexual or whatever, like you feel it in your body. Um, and there is no requirement that you have to have dated or slept with someone to officially be bisexual. Like there's no requirement um, that, you know, you do certain things or dress a certain way or tell people to be queer enough. Like we don't need this bullshit gatekeeping. Like if you feel like you're bisexual and that like you're attracted to your own gender and other genders, then congrats, you are a bisexual. Welcome to the club. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And one of the things that I have really struggled with that is kind of what you're talking about, this feeling of like, not feeling queer enough or not like not being able to be part of the community. Like one of the things that has really helped me with that is the purity culture dropout queer support groups that Erica Smith runs, who's our mutual connection, who you've also had on your podcast. Um, And which is just making me think about the role of community, like what you were saying about your friends and how that helps you understand your bisexuality and how that group helped me feel so accepted. And I feel so much more secure in claiming my identity as a bisexual person from being in that community of other people who are like me um, and feeling accepted by them. And that just feels so good, like how we need to be in community with each other and how good it feels to, to be in community in that way. We do. I mean, I would be nowhere without the queer community that I have developed. Like it was literally life changing to me to start to develop friendships um, with queer folks. And a lot of my friendships with queer folks are like online friendships. Like they're not even necessarily people that I have met in real life. And some of that is because of the pandemic. You know, maybe I wanted to go meet them in real life, but I wasn't able to yet. Um, But like, it doesn't matter. Like having that in common is just such a magical thing. I mean, so Erica's been on the podcast twice and most recently in um, June, we did a pride panel episode. And so I had um, four queer folks who had been on the podcast before come back on and do a pride panel. It's a fantastic episode. Anyone out there, I highly recommend it. I loved um, it. That's how I found your work. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, God, the conversation was so good. And every single one of us walked away from that conversation just like glowing and just feeling like, oh my God, there are people in the world who understand me, who get it even, and we were all different in in how we identify and who we are and other intersections of ourselves. But there was this thread that was holding us together and just like hearing about different people's family experiences and different people's coming out. I mean, truly you just feel so held and loved. And so anybody out there, whether you already know you're queer or you think that you might be queer, go get yourself some community, like go on gay TikTok, like my God, it it will just (laughs) really help you feel more affirmed in your identity. Yes, um, absolutely. (laughs) I really appreciated the TikToks. And I think the other thing I just want to share is that I feel really seen by a lot of your story. Like I also felt the same in my family. I grew up in a really religious family and, and being anything other than heterosexual was not, still is not an option at all. And so I, yeah, internalized a lot of homophobia and biphobia, which made me feel like, oh, I'm straight and all straight people feel this way, right? Like aren't all straight women kind of into women too, but we're still straight, like, (laughs) which is like, no. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, that was really resonant for me as well. And I think it's hard when you, yeah, do experience attraction to multiple genders when queerness is not supported to understand that. So like, I'm so proud of me and you and all of us for even finding that in ourselves when maybe some people didn't want us to. Exactly. And, and Google project for all of you go, if you've never heard this term, go look up compulsory heterosexuality um, because learning about compet really like made my brain blow up and be like, Oh, this explains, this explains so much. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, um, compulsory heterosexuality works in the same way as diet culture, where it's saying like, here's a box and everybody needs to fit into it. And it's reinforced your whole life, um, which is just, it's very depressing and fascinating. But again, finding community, finding other people who have gone through that just really helps so much. Mm, yes. And that feels like the perfect note to end it on. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Um, I really love this conversation. Can you tell everyone where they can find you and connect with you online? Absolutely. And thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. So I'm pretty much Shore Davidi, my name under everything. There are three H's, so try not to forget one. <laughs> uh, but I'm most active on Instagram in terms of my uh, business social media presence. My website is shoreidavidi.com. My podcast is Redefining Health and Wellness. And the easiest way to find it is to make sure you use an ampersand for the and instead of spelling it out. And that is my baby. I just had the one year anniversary of the podcast and I just absolutely love the direction that it's going in and the conversations and community that have resulted from that podcast. And then, like I said, I am on TikTok, which is just for funsies. But if you need an intro to bisexual queer TikTok, you can look me up on there too. It's also at Troy Davity. Yes. Okay. You coming out in that bisexual flag dress. I was just like, amazing. <laughs> That was a very fun day for me. That wasn't even going to go on TikTok, but everyone liked it so much. I was like, okay, I guess this will be my first TikTok then. Love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. There you have it. My conversation with Shore. Um, I wish that we had more time at the end to talk more about queerness and bisexuality and bi erasure and all of those things because I know I have a lot to say about that and I know that Shore does too, but... I think I'm going to do a whole episode about my relationship with my sexuality and the healing around that. So if that's something you'd be interested in, let me know on Instagram. I want to do it, but I think I might need a little encouragement from you to hear if you actually want me to do it. That'll get me going. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. It's really helpful and supportive, and it's a great way to be in exchange with the show if you get a lot out of it, if the show is helpful to you, if it means something to you. And definitely check out Shore's work, Instagram, Patreon, podcast, all of the things. I really love Shore's podcast. And I just listened to an episode with Kelly Deals the other day. I think it might be an older episode on her Redefining Health and Wellness podcast. And that might be a good one for you to listen to also. But they're all really good. Or all the ones I've listened to anyways. So check out Shory's work. And I'll be back on Monday with another episode. So stay tuned. Stay in touch on Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore or Patreon. Until then.